Thank you for listening to this Calvary Aurora Bible study with Pastor Ed Taylor. We pray as you study through God's Word that you're blessed by God's abounding grace. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them to 1 Kings chapter 13. As Rehoboam, you'll recall, chose to take the counsel of his younger friends instead of the seasoned counsel from the wise elders that served with his dad. And what was the result by taking bad counsel? The kingdom was divided and will forever stay that way through the life of the children of Israel during this time. For the next many hundred years, the kingdom's divided. No longer united under one king, but now strife and contention between 10 tribes versus two tribes. And you'll remember in 1 Kings chapter 12, in our study last time, I made, a, I, I made a mistake when I was laying before you the northern kingdom and southern kingdom and how many kings they had and how many good and bad. And some of you emailed me for that. I'm appreciative. Uh, and I want to correct it. Praise God it wasn't a theological problem, but I apologize. I get these things mixed up all the time. So let me repeat it the right way. By the time we finish studying this part of Israel's history, the northern 10 tribes of Israel will have 19 kings of which zero of them were good. Although there is a possibility that one king did a few good things, but for the most part, there are no good kings. Where the southern kingdom, the two tribes that make up Judah, have 20 kings by the time we end our study, and eight of them were good. The end of the history will be as, as the end of their history will be Assyria scattering Israel in 726 BC, and Judah will be, be taken captive by Babylon in 586 BC. Remember, the Babylonian captivity is the one mentioned in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, where the walls and the temple are, re, are rebuilt. Now, before us in chapter 13 is a review of the sins of Jeroboam. He chooses not to heed the warnings of God. And unfortunately, just skip ahead to the way the chapter ends in verse 33. After this event, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way. But again, he made the priest from every class of people for high places. Whoever wished, he consecrated him. He became one of the priests in the high places. And this thing was the sin of the house of Jeroboam so as to exterminate and destroy it from the face of the earth. Pick up with me now in verse 1, how the chapter starts. Behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. And he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places and burn incense on you, and men's bones shall be burned on you, verse 3. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar shall split apart, and the ashes on it shall be poured out. So it came to pass, when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, who cried out against the altar in Bethel, that he stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Arrest him. And then his hand, which he stretched out toward him, withered, so he could not pull it back to himself. The altar also split apart, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. Then the king answered and said to the man of God, Please entreat the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me, 
that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him and became as it was before. Verse 7. Then the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I'll give you a reward. But the man of God said to the king, If, I were to, if you were to give me half your house, I would not go in with you, nor would I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall not eat bread nor drink water nor return by the same way you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way he came to Bethel. In the midst of this eve, the beginning of this evil reign of Jeroboam, a man of God is sent to him. And this is really great news. And it's a reminder to us all that God still has faithful men and women, even in the midst of darkness and difficulty. At times we get involved in such difficult situations or we watch too much of the news and we see too much of the hopelessness and all we hear is bad news and we may wonder, where's the voice of the Lord? Where's the people loyal to God? And throughout the Bible, God reveals to us that he always has a group that remains faithful to him even in the midst of chaos and confusion. If you like to write in your Bibles and you want to think next to the word in verse 1, a man of God, you can write next to it the word remnant. That's a phrase that's used often in the Bible to describe a small group of people that remain loyal to God when the rest of the people have turned their back on God. And these are, this man of God at this time is remaining loyal to God. And there he comes to Jeroboam sacrificing beside the altar that he built. This wasn't indicated or instructed by God. He built the altar and this unmanned name an unnamed man is sent to him. So he comes to Jeroboam, who has appointed himself a priest. He has taken upon this false religious system to keep the people under control. And the prophet declares to him this interesting thing. You want to circle it in verse 2. He prophesies that this king is coming. And he names him by name. The king is named Josiah. What's powerful about this word is that this prophecy comes 200 years before Josiah is born. So you know the man is coming with a word of the Lord and he names the king Josiah and he warns Jeroboam that the evil that he's instituting will continue on until Josiah comes. And when Josiah comes, he is going to, to deal with all the issues. And I would say that in verse four, Jeroboam now heard the saying of the man of God and he cried, who cried out against the altar of Bethel, and he stretched out his hand from the altar saying, arrest him. That's his response. Let me just say that when God gives you a word from, he sends a word from himself to you, the best response is to receive it, not to, to con- try to control it. And arrest him. How dare you speak against me, he says. Arrest him. And as he did, notice, his hand, which he reached out probably to do something like this, withered so that he couldn't pull it back to himself. I mean, God is trying to get Jeroboam's attention here. He sends him a man with a precise message, speaking about this king that's going to come, who will rule in Judah while Israel's being destroyed. Jeroboam's evil ways through the kingdom of Israel will become so ruined by idolatry that the kingdom will be wiped out and disappear in a few hundred years. And his response is, get rid of him, destroy him. And God withers his hand. And notice, 
The altar, it says, it was, as, it was, as it was said in verse 5, split apart. The ashes were poured out. And the king answered now in verse 6 and says, you know, pray for me. Which is really no prayer. It's no real spiritual prayer. He just wants his hand back. So he says, pray for me that my hand will be restored. And the man of God entreated the Lord. And the king's hand was restored to him. And it was, became as it was before. And then he invites the prophet into his house. He wants to influence him in some way, maybe bribe him. And at the end of verse 10, as he, the, the man of God does not go home with him, we read no mention, nor will you read any mention, of Jeroboam turning from his sinful ways. No conviction of sin, no repentance, no change. As a pastor involved in many people's lives and also observant of many people's lives, there have been times in the ministry entrusted to my care where I'll watch a situation and I'll, I'll ask either out loud to the Lord or just in my heart, what will it take for that guy to repent? I mean, you look at what's happened in their lives. You look at what the results of their bad decisions will, have, have been. You, you see where they are. They're, they're, they're broken uh, they're destroyed. They're a shell of the person that I used to know. Their countenance that once was so bright and happy for God, it's, it's angry and twisted and, and it's aging. And, and you wonder, and then, and then we, as we pray for people during our pastor's meeting and names repeatedly come up of people in our congregation that, that one pastor's poured into and it's gotten worse. And another pastor's poured into and they turn their back. And another pastor's gone in and, and, and they're mad at him. And, 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 and all, the things that, all the things that happen and, and I just, I wonder what's it gonna take? What's it gonna take for that man or that woman to finally just say, look, you, you know, your hand is withered. Your life is withered. You, as my friend Pastor Jason Vanderveer from Parker once said, you know, as you're looking at someone's life and they're trying to explain to you why they're making all their decisions, I picked up from some, something from him uh, that he uses, and I use it on occasion now. You have the opportunity, you have a relationship with someone, and they're just all messed up and they refuse to repent. He asked the question, how's that working out for you? And it's a real question to ask, isn't it? How's it how are your decisions working out for you? I mean, God has given you the freedom to decide such and such and, and he's given you the freedom to do this and, and there you are even with the withered hand. You're try- and even after God restores to you, your hand back to you, there's still no change. And instead, he's trying to manipulate this man. The man of God told the king, you know, in verse eight, even if you were to give me half of your house, I'm not going in with you. The Lord told me not to. It was commanded me by the word of the Lord. You shall not eat bread, nor drink water, nor return by the same way you came. And and he went out another way and didn't return. Not only do we see Jeroboam unrepentant, but we see the man of God tempted. He watched all this happen. He gave the word. He saw the withered hand. He saw the altar split in the ashes. He saw God fulfill his word. And then he prayed and God answered him. And in the heat of, or in the midst of victory, Jeroboam, a king, I mean, this would be the equivalent of, you know, the president of the United States, they're standing with you, somebody in tremendous power saying, hey, thanks for what you did, come home with me, but you know the Lord said, don't go home with him. I don't know about you, but I think I'd be tempted. 
I think I believe God. I, I mean, I, I hope I would take a stand, st- strong stand after seeing everything that God is doing. But then if the number one guy in the whole world invited me home, I'm like, I don't know, maybe for a little bit, you know, and have to process it. And I think that the Lord wants us to know that the, our enemy is clever. He's clever. And he, we often think of hitting us when we're down. And he does. He's such a bad devil. <laughs> I don't know what to say. <laughs> but you know, he hits you when you're going well. You're doing well, too. He hits you at the high points. When things are going well, you usually let your guard down. I mean, when you're getting beat up and kicked in the face, you get into a fetal position and you protect yourself. But when you're victorious, your hands are up. You're a victor and you're running through the finish line. You kind of let your guard down. You don't. The enemy's clever. Peter would put it this way and he would know. Jot it down in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be careful. Watch out for attacks from the devil. Your great enemy. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for some victim to devour. Take a firm stand against him and be strong in your faith. Remember that your Christian brothers and sisters all over the world are going through the same kind of suffering you are. I mean, be careful and watch out for the attacks from the devil. He's your great enemy. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Your great enemy. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand against the wiles of the devil. Turn over to Ephesians 6. I meant to have you turn there because I want you to write this down so you can have it in your Bible. Turn over to Ephesians 6 and I want you to circle the word wiles there at the end of verse 11. Ephesians 6 verse 11. It says that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Even you guys listening on the radio, uh, if you have an opportunity to take notes, these are good things to write down because you may forget them. And we don't use the word wiles very much. But when I give you the root word from, from the original language, from the Greek, you'll understand why I want you to write it. So just like Jeroboam, the temptations of the enemy are always clever, unique, and what Paul writes here, wily, the wiles of the devil. So circle the word wiles and write next to it, methods. It's the Greek word methodias. And where we get our word methods, we also get words from this Greek word tricky, shrewd, and crafty. So don't think for a moment that you can figure out the methods of the devil. While he uses, he uses the same types of methods, the way that he twists them and prepares them for you and me are going to be different. That's why when you watch a brother fall to some sin and you see a sister just overtaken by some sin and your response is, you know, I don't, I don't understand how that got them. That that's not an issue for me. You're right. That's the point. It's a crafty temptation for them, but the temptation is not going to come to you. You know, the devil's not going to tempt you with Brussels sprouts. That's not going to happen. There's no temptation with them. You know, you're fasting, and I'm on my eighth day of fasting. You know, the smell of Brussels sprouts is not going to, I think I'll give up on the Lord. And they go, just, you know, you know, call the show. Do you think I can give up fasting for Brussels sprouts? No, you can't. It's not a temptation. But if you have a favorite food or, you know, you, uh, you like chocolate, you know, there's going to be a chocolate fountain on your desk when you come into work because it was a special day. Of a, you did the most sales last month and they're surprising you with a gift. 
And it's a whole chalk. And they said, no working today. Just, just here's a spoon and just have at it all day. <laughs> now that's a temptation. And maybe for you, you don't like chocolate. So you're like, well, I'm the Brussels prosper. You understand. You understand. So it's so important because in the battle, it's tricky and shrewd. In times of struggle, in times of anxiety, frustration, in times of peace, in times of blessing, your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion. In the, old King, in the New King James, it says, seeking whom he might devour. Your adversary. That word means your enemy. He's an adversary. He's against you. The idea is that someone that's arguing and do, is doing what he needs to take you down to come at you at every turn. You want to grow. You want to be used of the Lord. You want to give God's word to someone. You want to be faithful in what he's called you to do. And then you are faithful. Your temptation, there was a temptation to get there. There was a temptation in the middle of it. And there's a temptation on the other side. That's where this young man is. It's a good time for him. We need to be sober and watchful and resistant and vigilant. Yes, there'll be the attacks. But we overestimate and we overvalue the power of the devil to tempt you. And instead of valuing the power of God to protect you. Because you got the roaring lion, the devil, who walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom. But you and I, in our lives, we have, uh, we have pledged our allegiance and surrender to not a roaring lion, but to the lion of the tribe of Judah, who gave his life for you who sacrificed all, who protects you. And uh, we would do well to remember him and his power far more than the devil, but not to minimize the devil. He's a wily, methodical, evil being that wants to destroy you and me at every turn. Pick up now in verse 11, now back in 1 Kings. Now an old prophet dwelt in Bethel and his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. And they also told their father the words which he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, which way did he go? For his sons had seen which way the man God, of God went who came from Judah. Then he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him and he rode on it and went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I cannot return with you nor go in with you, neither can I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For I have been told by the word of the Lord, you shall not eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by going the way you came. And he said to him, I too am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, bring him back with you to your house that he may eat bread and drink water. But he, what does your Bible say? Lied to him. Um, wow, a man of God lying? An old prophet? And he went back, verse 19, with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. What did I just finish sharing with us and teaching us? The devil is methodical. This is the exact same temptation. Except it's got a little twist to it. But it's the same thing. What's the word from God? You can't eat here. Pretty simple. So therefore, the answer of any invitation is no. And yet in the dialogue, something was added. This older prophet comes, hears of the great deeds of this young man, and then invites him over. The prophet refuses. Why? Because the Lord told him not to. That's a good beginning. 
No. But the older man, he uses this lie in verse 18. I'm a prophet, so he tries to relate to him. And just like you, and an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord. He gets spiritual on him and tries to lay on him some spiritual heavy trip that makes him second guess that he heard from the Lord. And what does he say? An angel told me. Well, let me give you a little insight on what you're supposed to do when an angel comes with something, with somebody says, you know, an angel, so when I, I talk to angels, or angels aren't as popular as they were a few years ago, but uh, there was a time when it was angels everything, angels earrings, necklaces, books, movies, you know, little spinners for your wheels on your car, I mean, angels everything. And, and there was a big emphasis. And I don't see it so much anymore, but you're still going to hear of it. So take, take with me, uh, go with me to Galatians chapter 1, and let's read what we learn in the first century that's still relevant today. Because the entire cult, the entire Mormon cult, uh, what is known as the Church of Jesus Christ's Latter-day Saints, which really isn't a church, and it's not of Jesus Christ, their whole theology is built on a man by the name of Joseph Smith that said he received a word from an angel. And the angel even has a name, Moroni. And here's the word of the Lord to someone that comes with an, a message that says it's from an angel that contradicts the scriptures. Here's what the Bible says. Galatians chapter 1, verse 8. But even if we, or a, what does your Bible say? An angel. Say with me. Even if we or an from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you. Let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if some, anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Even if an angel is used to validate the message, even if you see an angel in a dream, even if you see some image of an angel at the foot of your bed, even if angels are hovering around your house in the clouds and they share something with you that is contrary to the written word of God and the absolute only one gospel, that there is only one true gospel, even though there are many messages that, proclaim to, that, that claim to be the gospel, we are to reject it. You are to reject it. The word accursed, both at the end of verse 8 and the verse 9, is the Greek word anathema. Anathema. It literally means cursed to the lowest part of hell. So Paul's pretty serious as he's writing to the Galatians. There's going to be a lot of people with a lot of messages claiming to be the gospel. And we know that because it says any other gospel. Any other, any other. There's going to be a lot of people with a lot of messages and they might even be an angel or somebody that said they spoke to an angel. And you receive the gospel. You know. And here's the summary of the gospel message. Jesus Christ, the, the eternal son of God, was sent from heaven to die for your sins on a Roman cross. And he took the full weight and penalty of the wrath of God upon himself for your sins and mine. He died on that cross. They buried him in a tomb. They put a, a rock in front of that stone in front of it, sealed it, put Roman guards standing there. And three days later, 
Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, rose again from the dead to declare victory over sin and death for everyone that will place their faith in him. There is no other gospel. There is no other way. Jesus himself validating through his death and resurrection, Jesus himself validating that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. You aren't going to find salvation for your sins in following a priest or a religious system. You will not find salvation and forgiveness for your sins by following a pastor or a movement of churches. You will not find salvation or forgiveness of your sins by following an organization or a set of false teachers. You will not find forgiveness of sin or salvation by listening to a false message that's pertain, that is somehow attributed to an angel because that angel is, as we learn in another book of the Bible, that doesn't it make sense that there will be lies from angels because the devil can even make himself an angel of light. And it's very serious that we see even back in 1 Kings here that the demonic realm and lies, there are lies that people use spiritual reasons That's why in a church setting, I know that when we come to church and gather together as the saints, I know that we, when we get off of work and we're thinking about worship because week has been so hard and we're thinking about the person that we invited and we hope they show up. Well, we gave out an invitation and a card for the radio and we're just hoping they listen and, and we're so excited. We're, we're, we're just anticipating getting out of the world for a little bit, almost like taking a spiritual shower, getting washed by the water of the word, that it's easy for you to let your guard down in this room. It's easy to, for you to let your guard down because there's the natural assumption that we're all believers. Although you need to understand that our fellowship family is often filled with a lot of people that aren't believers for a variety of reasons. Sometimes they come in out of the snow. Sometimes they come in for out of the heat. Sometimes they've been invited here. So who, there's a lot of reasons. The, the time that we have a gathering and there aren't any unbelievers around, oh, Lord, forgive us. Forgive us. And so you have to never let your guard down because you could be talking to a brother and sister and they may not have the best motives. You have to stay in the spirit. Somebody comes to you and you go, I don't know about that, what I just heard a pastor say. And, and uh, you know, I was talking to an angel last night and uh, the angel said that he was going to tell me he was going to say that. And just, uh, you know, it's like, bing! <laughs> really, you talk to angels. Uh, and uh, so you don't think pastor knows what he's talking about. No, you know, angel told me last night, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Well, let's go talk to pastor. Oh, no, 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 uh-uh. No, no, no. And, you know, it's, you, you want to let your guard down. You don't want to let your guard down even when you're around believers. I don't think you need to be hyper-skeptical, but you also don't want to be, let your guard down so much where you just kind of believe everything that people tell you. I, I would even encourage you in the sense of, as the Bible study is being taught here, that, that we take up what the Bible teaches us in the book of Acts, that we're Bereans, and you take what's taught from the pulpit here, and you go home and read it. You know, go home and look it up on, on go, go to blueletterbible.org and look up the word wiles and see if I was right. You know, if I give you a number of how many tribes and stuff or how many kings, go ahead and look it up. You know what happened that night? Brother came up uh, with his Bible and he said, Pastor, um, um, I just want to know if, uh, you know, the number, he was very kind and, and I know him for many years. 
coming to the church and he says, I just, you know, I, I, think, I think you made a mistake with the numbers, but either your mistake or my study Bible is a mistake. <laughs> and I said, no, bro, I know I made a mistake. Your study Bible is right. I just totally blew it. I always get confused about that, but you know, it, it's okay to ask the question. Uh, and you know, most likely I probably made the mistake, not your study Bible. But even our study Bibles can make mistakes. Uh, even the things that we write, uh, can, even, even sometimes they'll, when they're printing the Bibles, they'll misprint a word or something. And we just got to keep our guard up. I know it's not as, as strong as what Paul is saying here or what we're learning in 1 Kings, but let, let's walk and, and let's be men and women of the word where we can handle it ourselves. Let's make sure that we're reading it and we, we're not, maybe we're not going to be the greatest theologians. You know, when I talk to some people that have been to seminary and they study more and they, they know, I met, a, I met a man recently, he's going to actually come out and speak for me in December, speak for us uh, right before Christmas. He's a genius assistant professor, PhD in the Hebrew language. And so he's going to come and share and just speaking with him, like he's just so smart. But even that brother we need to check and make sure that it's accurate to the word of God. And you don't have to be a seasoned seminary PhD guy or gal to understand the word of God. Just be in the word and let the Holy Spirit give you what you need as you need it and, and know how to use it in someone's life and be able to, to have the courage to say, you know, Pastor, I, I wonder if you missed that word or you know what, Sister, I see your life right now, but when I read the Bible, you know, this is what the Bible says. And when I compare your life with what the Bible says, it doesn't match up. What do you think you should do? That's a kind way of rebuking somebody. Just saying, man, I, I mean, we've been friends for a long time. You know, we've been through a lot together. And, and as I'm reading the Bible, I was just reading something last night, and, and it just seems that this is for you. And you just go share the scripture with them. And it's a powerful thing as believers are doing what God's called them to do on the earth today, loving people. And then giving the only thing that has absolute authority on the earth today. And that's the word of God. It's unquestionable. As people are undermining it and making fun of it and, and making fun of you because you believe it and saying you're following fairy tales and myths. They did that in the first century too. And guess what? The Bible's still here changing lives. God is still using the word of God. So much so that Jesus said heaven and earth is going to pass away. But my words will by no means pass away. They're the most powerful thing you can give to people. But if you examine your life, I'm certain that the amount of opinion you give far outweighs the amount of the word of God you give. You just gotta flip that around. And the more you're in the word of God, the more your opinion will be the word of God. And you'll be sharing things and you'll be sharing something and then when at the end you're like, man, that was really good, what was that? It's actually in the Bible. You were reading it a couple weeks ago and the Holy Spirit put it in your heart. And you now he's drawing it out for you and you didn't even know you're going to need it two weeks from there. And it's just a beautiful thing. We have to be careful not to believe things because somebody says them and tries to twist our arm with some spiritual lie. This is strong language from Paul in Galatians. He says, no matter what an angel might say or what a prophet might speak or what a pastor might teach, if it doesn't line up with what you know the word says, reject it wholeheartedly and unashamedly. And as a pastor, for me, it's troubling as I watch the body of Christ so quickly, and really, primarily, it's the leadership that encourages it, but I watched the church over the last 
18 years, follow after every fad, every trend, every weird latest flavor of Christianity, trying to find some kind of satisfaction and trying to become relevant to a culture that's ever-changing. And if you watch it happen, if you see it from my perspective, if you watch it from my perspective, the church is always trying to run, run, run and catch up with the world. And why wouldn't they think they caught up? The world takes off. And, and it's like, you know, it would be like now, you know, if the church is just catching up and we finally got 70s music, we got it perfected. And the church has moved on, man. The 70s are over. We're in the year 2017. <laughs> you know, this is, it's, we were long gone. But I watched the church just like, just almost like, it's, it's almost like, and, and maybe this is you, maybe the Lord's going to really deal with your heart, but it's almost like you're begging the world to accept you. The world will never accept the church. This world system hates Jesus Christ and will never accept the church. And any goofy, relevant, entertainment-driven church, the world mocks. Because now we have no authority and no power the, tr- the world laughs at a church that compromises, even as the world laughs at a believer that compromises. They're just waiting for the believer to compromise, and, and they get inflamed when you see you stay strong in the midst of trial. When they see you stay strong, when everyone in the office is, is sharing that joke and forwarding that, and you're like, no, 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 I'm just going to eat my ham sandwich and listen to the radio. What are you doing in the car all the time? You know, I just, I can't deal with all your guys' just your words. Like, I don't do that. Yeah, but you did a couple weeks ago. Yeah, but now I'm saved. And I don't do that. And over the years, so many goofy and false teachings have come into the church in the name of truth and relevance and traditions and customs are suggested to churches that sound good and maybe feel good, but unfortunately aren't good because they're not in the scriptures. They're just people testing things out. And who gets, who, who's the one that pays the price? The church, the sheep, as pastors are testing things out on people. Let's see if this works. And I wonder what will get the most uh, attention, what will grow our church, and all the wrong motives. Instead of just teaching people to love God, surrender your life to him, and, and you say, Pastor, how do I do that? Well, we're going to study the Bible together, and we're just going to follow Jesus. We're going to learn from him. And you're like, that's it. That's it. You're not going to do any, no. You're not going to drive a car on the stage? I wouldn't even know how to get it in here. You're not going to ride your Harley up? I don't do Harleys. It's like maybe a tricycle. Tick, 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 tick. You know, I don't, I'm not, I don't, I don't have, it, it's not going to be. You're not, you're not going to have the, you're not going to have the largest Easter egg hunt in Colorado? We're not going to have the largest Easter egg hunt because then, then we can put that on our flyer and then the next church will do one extra egg and then we have to erase it. You know, oh, we're the second largest. What do eggs have to do with Easter anyway? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. I don't have any problem with whatever you choose to do, but the church of Jesus Christ on Easter is going to proclaim the gospel. That's what we're going to do. We're going to introduce you to Jesus. We're going to tell you about Jesus. And then, and then we're going to tell you how you can repent of your sins. We're not going to, you know, if we attract you that way, then what are we going to need to do on the next holiday? And then what are we going to do, need to do on the next holiday? And then the, the year that the Lord busts us and we say, you know what? No more gimmicks. I'm sorry. I repent. No more gimmicks. We're just going to teach you the Bible. 90% of the church leaves. Why? Because they were there for the gimmicks. And maybe you're here 
and you're wondering when we're going to start the gimmicks. Well, the way that God does that is he puts people like me in the pulpit. I'm the gimmick. Because <laughs> I don't belong in the pulpit. I shouldn't be alive today. I'm a foolish thing. I would be someone you look at and just shake your head and go, what is he doing in the pulpit? I ask the same thing at times myself. But God is always faithful to remind me that he uses the foolish things to confound the wise. That he uses rocks if he wants to. He he can use angels if he wants to. And and he can use donkeys if he wants to. And he he can use men like Ed Taylor if he wants to. Who confound the world who has to answer uh, what seminary, when I get the email, which I do pretty much weekly, what seminary did you go to? I didn't. And they let you be a pastor? I know. (laughs) I know. It's shocking to me. You see, we need need to, to, to bring the level of our need for entertainment and need to be stimulated and need to be entertained and need to, we need to bring that level down and be satisfied with the presence of Jesus Christ in our lives and his sufficiency. When he says, my grace is sufficient for you, but we're always stimulated and we're always, the world props us up and, and, and the world's always constantly keeping us going, keeping us going and, and it's hard to sit and be silent and wait on the Lord. It's hard to sit through a Bible study and time is flicking and, and you know, man, I, I'm, my attention's all over the place and I'm thinking about it and I gotta come back and I'm thinking, but the Lord is training you. I think of all the things over the years. Uh, you know, there was a laughing movement that came into the church. There was a barking movement. You know, people were literally barking in churches in the name of God. I'm not making this stuff up. There was screaming. There was a time in the church where they were roaring like lions. They were, um, they're, they're now today the popular thing is downing shots of whiskey in Jesus' name, smoking cigars to top up, talk about the deeper things of theology and a whole host of weird, and there's always the snake handlers. They've been with us forever, the snake handlers. They're just, just, if I have any influence in your life is to teach you to depend upon the Lord, to, to depend upon his sufficiency, and it's vital I won't develop this because I've developed it in other places in Bible studies, but if you're taking notes, it's vital that what we practice in the church is, and how we express our faith to be clearly seen and taught in the scriptures. And there's three ways, three things to look for. Number one, did Jesus do it? Number two, did it continue on in the life of the church in the book of Acts? And thirdly, did it, was it covered, taught, or corrected in the epistles. For, for example, let me give you a, real, real, a one that we all do as a church, and we don't do it because it's tradition, we do it because it passes with three tests, communion. Did Jesus uh, partake of communion? He instituted it. Did the early church partake in communion? Yes, they continued steadfastly in it. And was it spoken on, repeated, or even corrected in the epistles? The letters of Paul are letters? Yes, is one of the ones that we think of um, right away is in Corinthians where he had to correct it. And so therefore, we practice it in the church. How about barking in the spirit? Did Jesus do that? John chapter 25, 
Jesus barking on the mountain. You know, no, no, he didn't bark in the spirit. Is it anywhere in the New Testament? Anywhere in the book of Acts? It's nowhere in the book of Acts. And is it anywhere corrected or mentioned in the epistles? It's, it's a modern day thing to keep people excited and entertained. The problem is, is that when it wears off, what are you left with? But a desire for more emotion instead of a desire for more of the Lord. How careful we need to be. So back in 1 Kings 13, you got this guy, he's lying, even as it's still happening today, that things are happening in the church and coming into life and, and the reason why is because, well, an angel told me. Well, I don't care if an angel told you. It's not in the word of God. I don't trust that angel. Now, 1 Kings 13, pick up where we left off. Verse 20. Now it happened as they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back and he cried out to the man of God who came from Judah saying, thus says the Lord, because you've disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but you came back, ate bread, drank water in the place of which the Lord said to you, eat no bread and drink no water, your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your father's. And it was after that he had eaten bread and after he had drunk that he saddled a donkey for him, the prophet whom he had brought back. And when he was gone, a lion met him on the road and killed him. Wow. Back fast. His corpse was thrown on the road and the donkey stood by it and the lion also stood by the corpse. You, you have to allow the Bible to actually like, this is This is crazy. This is, this is, we read it like, yeah, lion ate him, and then the donkey's standing there, and the lion, I mean, come on now. This is a dramatic way that God is showing us that sin doesn't pay. It's a dramatic way. And I pray that you just let it sit in. These are the things your kids should be laughing at when you're reading the Bible to them, because they listen, and they're paying attention. You go, seriously, a donkey just stood there? Right by the dead. Man, that's crazy, Dad. I know. And the lion, he's not eating the donkey? Like, why? Like, think about it. Like, and the donkey's fighting. And they're like, you know, no. They're just sitting there. And there, men passed by and saw the corpse thrown on the road. And they saw the lions. Men passed by and saw the lion standing there. Side note. We were in South Africa for one of our mission trips. I taught at a conference out there. They took us on a safari, put us in a caged car truck, like seriously caged all the way around, and they took us through and drove us by the lions. And they said, if you drop anything out of the truck, do not get it. Consider it lost. We might be able to come back and get it later, but do not get it. Even if the lion is on the other side of the fence, all the way on the other side, don't get it. Because by the time you stake your foot out of the truck and your first foot hits the ground, the lion will already be up and 10 paces towards you. They're that fast. Just, I don't care if it's an iPhone. I mean, he was really, he was just like, don't do it. And and so we drove by and the lions are all lazy under the tree and they kind of, you know, like this guy just standing there, you know, just sitting there. 
And, and we just kind of wondered if it was going to be that way. And all of a sudden, the lions jumped up and started running because a food truck came in, like with all this meat. And it, man, they're, they're fast. So the Bible is just, don't, don't miss these little nuances of the scriptures. If you think that this is normal, that the lion sits there and men pass by the lion standing there, this is not normal This is supernatural, what God is doing here. And it's dramatic. Why? Because there are those times in our lives where the wages of our sin is dramatic. And it may not be dramatic for us because in our lives, we have died because of sin. It has crushed our lives and destroyed our dreams. But there are people walking by our lives. And it's dramatic for them. It catches their attention. And it says in verse 26, when the prophet who had brought him back of the way heard it, he said, uh, it is the man of God who was disobedient to the word of the Lord. Therefore the Lord has delivered him to the lion which was torn him and killed him according to the word of the Lord which he spoke to him. Yeah, because you're a liar. And he spoke to his son saying, saddle the donkey for me. And they saddled it. And then he went, verse 28, and found his corpse thrown on the road and the donkey and the lion standing by the corpse. And the lion had not eaten the corpse, nor torn the donkey. And the prophet took up the corpse of the man of God, laid it on the donkey, and brought it back. So the old prophet came to the city to mourn and to bury him. And he laid the corpse on his own tomb, and they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother, because the wages of sin is death, and the response for people that love you is sadness. So it was, verse 31, after he had buried him, that he spoke to his son, saying, When I'm dead, bury me in the tomb where the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones for the saying which he cried out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the shrines on the high places which are in the cities of Samaria will surely come to pass. And after this event, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but again he made priests from every class of people for the high places, whoever he wished. He consecrated him, became one of the priests of the high places, and this thing was the sin of the house of Jeroboam so as to exterminate and destroy it from the face of the earth. And that's how the chapter ends. It's a dramatic, interesting chapter. There'll be a lot of these types of chapters as we go through of how God is dealing with his people. And Jeroboam does not turn from his evil ways. And the nation will suffer as a consequence. What he set in motion never ended. What he set in motion never ended. Even after God's word is shown to be true to him, he continues in the false worship away from God. He's a bad king, one of the many bad kings in Israel's history. So read ahead. Um, Next time together we'll be looking at the continued sin and the judgment of God on Jeroboam. Continued sin of Jeroboam Jeroboam in this and the judgment of God. So Father, we ask for your uh, word to come alive. It's a very dramatic chapter. It's a very interesting chapter. uh, And... We have a lot of different warnings, a lot of different insight, um, and I know that sin and the effects of sin can be surreal at times and very difficult, and, and we just pray for you to, to keep us strong. I, when none of us are perfect and none of us can stay away from this nonsense, and every one of us is susceptible to believing a lie, to being lied to, uh, and, and sometimes we're lied to and people don't even use Uh, the excuse of an angel of the Lord. They just lie to us and we believe it because we trust them. And, And so God, protect us from ourselves. Protect us from the weakness of our flesh. 
protect us from people that would want to take advantage of us and hurt us. Put into a sound doctrine. Forgive us when we have attempted to place something before ourselves or before the people and try to satisfy them with something or someone other than you. That you would guard us from gimmicks and, and trying, to, trying to do something in the, in the work of our flesh that only you can do in the spirit. And I think of our fellowship, God, as we grow older and the years click off. I'm encouraged by, my, by, by Pastor uh, Greg that in his latter years, he's just running faster than he ever has. And your anointing is still upon him and he's endured so much. Surrounded him with great people to serve alongside of him. And, and so let that inspire us. Let us be open to a fresh work of your Holy Spirit. New wine and poured into new wineskins. That we would just be so open and so ready to receive the true direction and word from you, Lord, in these last days. And that we wouldn't try to fit in this world. We don't and we never will. And yet, Lord, we don't want to be offensive and, and you know, we don't want to be you know, hurtful or judgmental or anything, but, but we also recognize that we're not going to fit in this world. If the world hated you, Jesus, it's going to hate us too. And give us strength to navigate through that in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray that you've been touched by this study from Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call area code 303-628-7200. Be blessed this week in the Lord.